0: Good morning, good evening, wherever you are across the world and the universe. Welcome to my Quantum Living podcast, where we talk about anything and everything at the intersection of science and spirituality. I'm your host, Anna Anderson, quantum coach, Reiki master, and Theta meditation teacher. Above all, an inquisitive soul. Since my early childhood, I've been on a quest to find out how life really works. And the best clue I've got so far is the sacred alchemy of physics and metaphysics, science and spirituality, mind, body, and spirit, which together reveal the truths we all want to know. Who am I? Why am I here? What life is all about? How can I live my life to realize my highest potential with fulfillment, prosperity, and joy. How can I manifest what I want? I'd love to share with you on this podcast what I have learned over the years and bring you inspiring conversations with my guests who will share their expertise as well. Welcome to the brand new, exciting Season 4 of Quantum Living. Okay, let's begin. Hello and welcome back to Quantum Living. As I said in my previous episode with Elin McCusick on Biofield Tuning, I continue my exploration of the fundamental nature of our reality, that everything in the creation is energy, speaking with thought leaders, inventors, scientists, intuitives and experts on, essentially, how we can use this knowledge and work with energy for our benefit. It's been several years now since the release of What the Bleep and The Secret, seen as the critical milestones in bringing this knowledge out of the shadows of obscurity and ridicule into the mainstream light of our consciousness and understanding, creating a dramatic shift in the stale paradigm of how life really works. There is no other way. These claims can no longer be refuted as the gap between science and esoteric knowledge has now been closed. We have passed the point of no return, just like the first images of the Earth from space have put to bed the belief that our planet is flat. I find it truly inspiring and uplifting that there is a growing number of teachers who possess this knowledge and skills in energy work, whether for healing, obtaining important information from beyond the physical dimension through the sixth sense, so-called psychic abilities, or for our personal and spiritual growth by gaining an understanding of the cosmos and our role in it, who are willing to share this knowledge with others. So, let's continue on our journey. My guest today is someone with such a broad spectrum and depth of expertise in topics at the intersection of science and spirituality that I could ask him pretty much any question (laughs) and the conversation could go in any direction from one rabbit hole into another. So I must be careful not to produce a six-hour episode here, (laughs) as I just won't be able to cut anything out of it. My special guest today is Dawson Church, PhD. Dr. Church is a researcher, best-selling author, founder of the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare, an expert and pioneer on using the Emotional Freedom Technique, or EFT, in treating anxiety and other psychological and mental disorders, supported by numerous clinical studies. His groundbreaking research has been published in many prestigious, peer-reviewed, scientific and professional journals. He is the author of three best-selling books, The Genie in Your Genes, Mind to Matter and Bliss Brain. Doctor Church offers workshops, training courses and classes through his popular website Eve to Universe and hosts his very own high energy health podcast. With all these activities, Doctor Church is certainly very busy, so I'm thrilled that he has accepted my invitation to appear on my show. And now he joins me from California. Hello Dawson, welcome to Quantum Living. It's such a great pleasure to have you on my show. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Anna, it's a joy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Beautiful. Gosh, we have so much to talk about. As I said uh, in my intro, I need to watch the time
1: (laughs) (laughs) with nothing but rabbit holes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, to set the scene for our conversation, Could you please share with us your personal journey that has brought you to this point of such amazing achievements and contribution in this field?
1: It's so interesting how the personal journeys of all the people who are in healing and in this kind of work often begin with them having problems. And I'm no exception to that. I was really unhappy as a a child. We had a pretty chaotic family and um, a lot of negative events happened for us when I was growing up. And so by the time I was 12, 13, I was just as depressed as you can imagine. I was so anxious. I was so, so um traumatized. I had no friends, no one wanted to be to be with me. And so I started by looking at spirituality. And I read the great philosophers, I read Alan Watts, and I read Krishna and I read all these all these accounts of the perennial philosophy, joined a spiritual community when I was 15 years old. And got a tiny bit happier, Anna, but not very much. And so I then thought, well, you know, I'm, now I'm 18 years old. Uh, spirituality isn't really helping a lot. I'll go try psychology. So psychology is going to help me. So I enrolled in correspondence courses at a university and began to take psychology classes. And was on a journey for many, many, many years. And um, got, again, a little bit happy and made some progress. Then when I was 45 years old, I made this pivotal commitment. And I was in a real crisis at that time. I was a single dad and I had a lot of chaos in my life. And 45 years old, I said, you know, I'm just going to meditate every single day without fail. Absolutely without fail. Every day I will meditate. And I did. And I then learned EFT tapping shortly after that. And Anna, I was amazed within a few months of making that commitment, my entire life changed, my money changed, my career changed, my relationships changed, my parenting changed, and my, my career changed. So a lot of good things happen when we make that commitment to pay as much attention to our inner reality as our outer reality. And then to be able to train people on these techniques as well. I wanted to not just have them be available to me and enjoy them myself. But I, I had a passion for seeing people heal. And once he worked with, say, a um a single mom and she's just so overwhelmed in such despair, and then she learns to emotionally regulate. She learns the skills to help herself calm down those unruly emotions. And she starts to shed the trauma that got her where she is. And then she starts to find emotional stability. Things change with her. It's powerful. When you work with a veteran who's been haunted since the Vietnam War by nightmares and flashbacks and intrusive thoughts, and you watch him just calm down and shed decades of trauma, it is so satisfying. So I've had just an amazing career since then. Just Researching, writing, and seeing what science has to show us us about how to how to really shift those those early life problems and traumas in our lives. And the good news is that there are so many fabulous methods right now. I teach them, I write about them, and we really don't have to stay stuck the way we used to have to stay stuck in in years gone by. So that's how I got from being a miserable suicidal teenager to being um, just every day feeling happy and fulfilled.
0: Thank you so much for sharing. And I might add that you didn't become just a normal happy person, but you have stepped up to become a leader and a and a thought leader and leader in this field, helping so many people. Now before we get to the nitty-gritty of this of this conversation, I would like to start with the broader picture to capture the essence of this podcast i titled it the conscious universe as your work is based on the principle that everything is energy and so we can work directly with energy to achieve different outcomes and i think that this can be extrapolated further to the notion that all energy carries information therefore all energy is intelligent Therefore, it is conscious. Therefore, the universe is conscious. And so, is the universe conscious? And if so, what evidence do do we have?
1: Yeah, so consciousness is a big topic. And the materialist view of consciousness is that we evolved, obviously, over the last four billion years. Mammals came on the scene around 400 million years ago, our brains got more and more and more complex as mammals evolved. Eventually there were primates, there were hominids, then there were human beings. And so we developed these huge, big, enormous brains. And the The materialist view is that this these brains eventually, as they developed a certain level of complexity, became conscious and consciousness resides in the brain and in the mind. And that materialist view has absolutely no basis in science. There's nothing in science to suggest that's true. In fact, there's a huge amount of evidence to suggest that our brains function much more as a receiver. So like right now, we're all listening to a podcast. Maybe I'm listening to a podcast on my wireless mobile device. It would be really silly to believe that Anna and Dawson are inside my iPhone. It's just (laughs) as silly to believe that consciousness is inside your brain. Your brain is two pounds of tofu-shaped tofu colored material and it's no more creating the signal of the the what we see around us as material reality than the um than you and I are in somebody's phone and it's just a cri- kind of crazy idea that we think that it's, it's got, got to be material and so our brains function in my book mind to matter I look at all the evidence showing our brains are in touch with information fields, and those information fields are global. Philosopher, Jesuit philosopher and paleontologist Théod de Chardin call this the psychosphere or the newosphere, the, the sphere of consciousness around the earth. And we download ideas from that level. Albert Einstein said that every great scientific discovery is made when you're in an altered state of consciousness. He discovered the theory of relativity in a dream, so you find over and over and over again in in, in in art, in science, in all fields of human endeavor and engineering, that people are in touch with information fields, and then they, they download these ideas, and then they manifest them. And the brain is this marvelous device for doing that. So you meditate, you calm your emotions, you then establish a connection with what I call in my books non-local mind, now you aren't just bumping along at the level of, oh gee, what shall I wear today? And what shall I eat? and What does my bank account look like? And what is my job like? And how are people treating me? And what does social media say? Now you're in touch with the infinite. And so in meditation, the saints and sages throughout the, the, the centuries have told us that they are able to connect with the source of infinite love, infinite knowledge, infinite power, and then you do that every day in meditation. You have a very, you're trans, transceiving a very different set of signals through your brain into material reality. And so, my book Mind to Matter is all about, is all about tracing how we create the things around us, the material world around us, by transceiving signals from our brain. If we are tuned to the signals of compassion and love and joy and gratitude, we create a very different reality. From if we're recycling anger and misery and stress and resentment and all the, the negative emotions, just our emotions, just our co- our local consciousness is creating reality around us. And so it's, it's, it's just wonderful to look at the evidence for that and see how much evidence there is for that and then decide that consciously we will align ourselves with that non-local mind and then make that our reality rather than being focused, as most people are most of their lives, on only their local reality.
0: Absolutely. You spoke earlier on about suffering and you personally hurting, if you like, as an empath, I assume, when you saw people suffer and so you wanted to find a way to alleviate that suffering. What is your definition of suffering? And do you believe that suffering, broadly speaking is an essential part of our life experience that we need to go through? Or does it serve only as a beacon pointing to those areas of our life that we need to focus on to rebalance?
1: Wow, and what a profound question. So what is suffering and why do we suffer? And one classical Buddhist definition of suffering is seeing pleasure and avoiding pain. Another definition of suffering is living as a local self, oblivious to who you are as a non-local self. So just living a limited human life, focused on what's right around you, seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. And so that that is suffering. Um, What happens to most of us is we have glimpses of something greater and the Sufis call these the glimpse. And so what the Sufis say is that every single human being has a glimpse of heaven a glimpse of something greater a glimpse of non-local mind and that glimpse might be in a form like a sunset just being absolutely transported out of your local awareness by watching a beautiful sunset or watching the ocean or if you've ever been present at the birth of a a child you're aware of that non-local reality go to hospice and hold the hand of somebody who's dying and listen to their story. And again, you'll be aware of something far greater than our, our local reality. So uh, there are all these ways seeing a flower. Um, Brother Lawrence just, just, did it by looking at a tree one day, bursting into, into green shoots and became enlightened by looking at a tree. So it happens to everybody. We all have these, these experiences. And then the wise people are the ones who say, you know, I haven't had that experience one day sitting in the temple or reading a scripture or in an inspiring movie or, or hearing that, that beautiful piece of music. I'm going to go do that again (laughs) (laughs) and again and again and again. And so if we're, if we're smart, we then start to seek out those experiences and what starts to happen then is very, very interesting. So we have various networks in our brains. And in my book, This Brain, I describe several different brain networks, one of which is responsible for the suffering self. And it's called the default mode network because our brain defaults to that suffering self whenever we are doing a task. So when I quit doing anything deliberately, my brain turns on two parts of the, the brain, one in the front here, one in the back here. I won't go into what they're called or... Or uh, or their exact functions, but I I do describe them at length in my book, This Brain. And when people are in that 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 brain, that default mode, forty six percent of their thoughts are negative. So the very negative, the very oriented toward bad things that happened in the past, bad things that might happen in the future, they are completely. Out of the present moment. So that's where most people are. And that's the suffering self. And that's the mode our brain defaults to because during the, our evolutionary history, it was very adaptive, very useful for your ancestor 100,000 years ago to think about the tiger that he escaped from yesterday and the tiger he might need to escape from tomorrow. So our brains default to that survival mode for a very good reason. Mm-hmm. But we also have four circuits, what, what researchers are now calling the enlightenment network. And so what you can learn to do is dial down that suffering part of the brain and dial up, all of these positive emotions in these four brain networks. And then when you do that, you have a very different brain. I did a a study, a randomized controlled trial using MRIs. And we put people into these giant new model MRIs by this leading company called Siemens that builds builds these. And we randomized them into either a mindful breathing group or a group that did a series of, of, of really powerful exercises called eco-meditation. And you can get this free on the web, ecomeditation.com. It's all over the web. So they're either doing eco-meditation or they were doing mindful breathing. And then we track them again after a month of doing one of those two things. And the people who'd been doing eco-meditation, they're literally, their brains changed. That suffering part of the brain just dialed down. The compassion part of the brain dialed up. So this isn't just a mood. Suffering isn't just an emotion. Suffering is literally a part of your brain being active. And you can learn to, just like a light switch or like a dimmer switch, better analogy, just dial it down. And when you do that, you're also dialing up gratitude, joy, awe, compassion, altruism, and you feel absolutely wonderful, which is why that book is called Bliss Brain. We measure people's brains in that state and they are absolutely
0: (laughs) FC wow amazing and wonderful information and speaking of your books I will and we will talk more about them I will obviously include all the links to them in the show notes and uh, I would recommend everyone to go <laughs> and and get them because this is such an amazing information now speaking of meditation I would like to uh, share something with you and, and the listeners, in particular in relation to deep meditation, which I understand your type of meditation is, when our brain is predominantly in the theta frequency. So I would like to just quickly share how I discovered it. I started meditation or meditating long ago when I was in my 20s and i was reading and hearing stories of this mysterious deep spiritual and difficult to achieve meditative state that only monks and yogis can can do and <laughs> and i couldn't reach it because i understand now that i was intensely focused on finding it which obviously <laughs> makes it so much more difficult <laughs> and then one day I was sitting in my recliner chair, totally relaxed, with my eyes closed, listening to some inspirational recording, as I usually do, when suddenly and spontaneously I found myself in a completely different state of mind I have never experienced before. To begin with, I had the most weird sensation of my body parts, my legs and arms, being raised up in the air in some very strange position, which I knew logically that this couldn't have happened. But the sensation was so strong that I could have sworn that this is actually what did happen. Still, I didn't open my eyes to check. After a few moments, I completely lost the inner awareness of my physical body. My body just disappeared it no longer existed i was pure consciousness unlimited unrestricted and free i was in a state of bliss which i can only describe as delicious as if i was given a heavenly nectar of gods (laughs) (laughs) in that state i felt that i had access to all knowledge and could receive any information i wanted. And the funny part was that it felt so good that I didn't want it to end. But of course, I eventually did come out of it. I had to make some effort to reconnect with my physical body and come back to the physical reality. Now, based on my research, I realized that finally I was in the theta state, which we go through naturally twice a day when falling asleep and then waking up. And otherwise, it is difficult to achieve the state at will. And to be able to achieve it and maintain the state for 30, 40 minutes, an hour at a time and longer has opened up a whole new dimension, metaphorically and literally speaking, of possibilities. So I started practicing it and developed a technique that helps achieve and maintain the state, which I teach and produce in my own guided theta meditations which is that deep meditation, and I call it theta because of the specific brain frequency that our brain goes down to of four to eight hertz. Could you please talk now to your own research into and practice of meditation? So I understand that you call it eco-meditation because it is so important for people to hear.
1: Yes. So that's great. And you do spend a little bit of time in theta when you're drifting from higher frequency brain waves into sleep. So our normal waking consciousness, our brain is in delta, is in beta, which is roughly 12 to 30 cycles a second. And that just means that hertz just means that that's the speed at which our neurons are firing, 12 times a second to 30 times a second. Above that is, is gamma and then most of the day we spend in beta. And then we have a little bit of alpha and alpha is from eight to 12 cycles a second. And so when we're falling asleep, we go slow down into alpha, then below that we're in that theta range, four to eight cycles a second. And then we spend most of the night in delta and then, about once every hour and a half or so, our brains speed up into theta and we have maybe two, three, four minutes of intense dreams and those are called rapid eye movement dreams when our eyes are in theta when our eyes are moving around and our brains are in theta, so we then drop back down into delta and that continues for another hour or so then we pop into theta that's called the sleep cycle when we're waking up, we go back into theta into into alpha, and then we're fully awake in and we're in in regular normal beta consciousness and so what we find in deep meditators is they have the ability to get into those really slow brain states a lot of theta a lot of delta some alpha and beta just goes away and once they have a big footprint of those slow brain wave frequencies then the fastest wave gamma cranks up we see a lot of gamma as well when they're having a lot of theta and delta so um we all all have this, but how do you get there? And that's your uh, that's that's the challenge we all have. And those Tibetan monks you're mentioning, it's just amazing. You watch their their brain wave activity, and Anna, they can get there sometimes in one second. You you tell them, okay, we're going to do a compassion meditation now, and a second later, boom, they're in delta and theta, tons of gamma going on, no beta, very little alpha. So, but they've again, they've done something these monks have done sixty thousand hours of meditation in their lifetimes. That's just such an enormous amount. Most of us can't do that. And most Westerners are never going to hit even the 10,000 hour level of meditation, let alone 20, 30, 40, 50,000 hours. So how do you get there? And that's why I just absolutely love science because scientists have been asking this question now for about 70 years since the very first researchers hooked spiritual masters up. To EEGs in the 1950s and 60s and began to read their brainwave patterns. And what we do now is we hook people up and we can get them there with techniques like eco meditation. And we get them there, Anna, in about six minutes. It doesn't take us long with the right instructions. So it used to take, you know, 10,000 hours going living in the monastery, taking vows, having a special diet, sitting at the feet of the master. And now we literally have people in a weekend workshop. And like one eco-meditation workshop, people were achieving those brainwave states in just a couple of days. It was just it was amazing to watch. In a seven-day workshop, they they, they do that. We have some online programs that will produce that result in just a few hours. So um, we now can get to those states, say, states much more easily. And they're just so blissful that you want to go back there. They motivate you to go back there because you have hormones like oxytocin and you have neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin and anandamide the bliss molecule all of these molecules are in your brain and so when you're feeling that good you want to go back there and we find people do eco meditation get to that blissful state like we have a wonderful um story on ecomeditation.com of a an I- 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 Iraq ve- veteran. His name is Bryce Rogo, and he had he emerged from four tours of duty in Iraq with severe PTSD. And he tried to get out of it. He tried to heal, tried all kinds of different techniques. He went to Japan, lived in a monastery, studied Zen for a while, and he just wasn't able to deal with his flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive thoughts. And one day he thought, you know, I was gonna go out there and see what else there is on the web. So he stumbled on ecomeditation.com and just read the instructions, closed his eyes and tried it and boom, he was out there. He was in that that non-local space immediately and people get there very, very quickly, but again, it's science-based and that's why science is showing us how to achieve those states without the 10,000 hours the, the old masters had to go through.
0: absolutely yes i mean i don't know how many hours i have been meditating all my life but now i can get to theta within 30 seconds so my point is following on on your comment is that pretty much everyone can learn it it is not beyond an average person's capacity i mean if i can learn it anyone can <laughs> And it's just a, a matter of finding the right technique and understanding and be committed to, yes, that's what I want to achieve. So I'm going to put in a bit more effort, not as much effort as I was putting in initially, <laughs> being focused on getting there, but as uh, as it is more appropriate.
1: Well, just to back up, your focus on getting there actually did help because focus is the hormone. Is the neurotransmitter dopamine. So focus is dopamine and also a little bit of norepinephrine. And so focusing on trying to get there actually does help. And another thing paradoxically that helps is frustration. You focus, (laughs) you try and get there, you're frustrated, you can't get there. That little squirt of norepinephrine (laughs) is actually going to help you get there. So um, in a study at Emory University, they found that meditation is a four-part cycle. And so in in at, at stage number one you're in meditation and then your mind wanders and you fall out stage number two then you notice that you're out stage number three and stage number four you put yourself back in again and now you're back at stage one so one so one is being there two is falling out three is realizing you're falling out four is putting yourself back in to that high state and that's actually where that little squirt of norepinephrine or frustration actually can help you up back inside wow
0: (laughs) oh i'm loving it (laughs) okay so let's now talk about the emotional freedom technique or eft what it is, how does it work, and what is the scientific explanation for this weird and funny technique. And I have to say, let's face it, it does look silly, okay? And if I were an E.T., an extraterrestrial (laughs) visiting here, and I saw people tapping, I would think that this is some sort of language or secret communication pattern or something. (laughs) Because it does look silly. And when I talk to people about it, a lot of people dismiss it on this part because it just looks, well, it's just too simple and it looks silly. It looks ridiculous. i'm I'm not gonna you know, tap more my face because, you know, without understanding the scientific basis for it. So could you please shed? Some light, or a lot of light, on <laughs> this particular technique, and then we we talk about how beneficial it is, and and how we can use it to help us with so many issues.
1: Yeah, and I'll I'll frame it with meditation. So I teach EFT tapping. I also teach meditation because meditation gives you this fundamental baseline of well-being. Practice meditation, and you'll move to a, a spot after a while where you just are in this. Emotional place of feeling as though you're fundamentally okay. So you want to get you that to that place. And that's also why I recommend doing meditation in the morning when you are still in a little bit, you still have a little bit of theta and delta in your brain, a little bit of alpha, and now you're you're primed for meditation. So do it in the morning. But then stuff happens. 10 o'clock, you get an email, or you get called into your boss's office, or you get a, a phone call from an upset client. Things happen during the day. So to get yourself back to that happy baseline, that's when you you tap. And tapping is very simple. It um combines elements of cognitive therapy and exposure therapy. So you think about the bad stuff in your life, either past bad stuff or future fears or physical pains or or issues as well, symptoms. And then while you're thinking about the disturbing things in your life that 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 disturb you emotionally, you then apply pressure, acupressure, pressure to a series of acupuncture points. And acupuncture uses needles. Acupressure has been around for thousands of years in Qigong. Qigong masters have been tapping for thousands of years. Uh, Shiatsu massage from Japan uses tapping or pressure on acupuncture points, not just needles. Needles are one way of stimulating your acupuncture meridians, but acupressure works too. And you just tap on them while you're thinking about the bad stuff. And what we see in the brain is so interesting. And when you first think about, say, for example, a childhood event that was traumatic to you, the part of the brain that processes memory and learning and emotion, the center of the brain, the limbic system, gets really activated. So you have somebody think about, say, being injured or beaten or bullied as a child, and now their emotional brain in an EEG, you'll see their emotional brain get highly active because they're processing the emotions of fear and maybe shame and anger and other negative emotions. And so that part of the brain that holds emotion and also holds memory is now really lit up. When you tap on these acupuncture points, that sends a second signal to the body, through the body, to the brain. And it says, everything's okay because now I'm doing a calming activity I'm stimulating an acupuncture point. Now the brain's got two signals. It's got one signal from the memory of the traumatic events saying, go into fight or flight, panic, hit the panic button, turn on the amygdala, go into raise your adrenaline, raise your cortisol. So the brain's getting one signal from the traumatic memory to go into fight or flight. And it's getting a second completely contradictory signal from the tapping saying, calm down, everything's fine. There is no threat to you right now. And this is also regulating your energy system. So the brain gets a second signal from the body saying, be calm, and it realizes then that the memory is not an actual threat to your survival right here and now. And so you're thinking about the memory, you're also tapping, and that breaks the association in the brain between the bad thing that happened to you in the past and going into fight or flight. And we literally see that part of the brain, the emotional center, just calm down and calms down within seconds. I mean, that doesn't take like 10 minutes. Usually it, it calms down very, very quickly. And once we break the association between thinking about the traumatic event and going to fight or flight, once you break that association one time, usually it stays broken. Not always, but most of the time, for example, working with veterans, when we test them and test their PTSD symptoms, again, six months or a year later, and say, okay, think back to like one veteran called Bob Culver was in a documentary and his terrible experience in Vietnam was an attack on a field hospital and about uh, 18 people were killed in that attack. And so initially Bob's talking about this and it's sweating, his face is is is, is all pale, um, his heart's pounding. And then after EFT, he's able to just describe the explosion and the bodies, and the blood, and the horror of the scene, he still remembers it, but he no longer has all the fight-or-flight signals being passed on into his body. So that's just a very simple explanation of how EFT works in the brain, works in the body.
0: Mm. Beautiful explanation. Thank you so much. It's now much more clear for those listeners who haven't, who are not familiar with with it. So even though it does look a bit silly, (laughs) when you (laughs) You know, when you do it and when you watch someone tapping, there is actually a purpose and, and sense to it. I have one particular question about the technique. Some practitioners include in the basic tapping process, tapping on the top of your head as the last point in the cycle. You don't include it. Why?
1: sometimes i do and in my newer videos i do and in the old edition of the eft manual the one i wrote in 2013 we did not include it but a lot of people began to use it so it became widespread so in my later videos after 2013 i am using that point so up here it's on the on the governing meridian which runs from here all the way down the back of your body and is also linked to the central meridian which starts over here and runs down the front of your body. So that came into widespread use like around 2010, 2015. So we then updated EFT to include it in the me- method.
0: Mm. I have to say that when I tried it with and without that final tap on the crown or on the top of the head, I found that this tap on the head was actually helping me. And Yesterday, for some reason and with no logical uh, explanation, I started feeling anxiety. And so, and it was getting quite strong. So I decided, okay, I'm going to do the tapping. Yes. So I did. And I just tapped on this unexplained anxiety because I didn't know the cause of it. So I did the tapping, and two things happened. Pretty much immediately, I could feel the energy flow through my body. And when I finished, the anxiety was gone and it was so powerful, so effective. And I could tell that it wasn't my, if you like, mental placebo effect, as someone might call it, oh, because you were expecting it, that's what happened. Because I felt the energy flowing through my body and I feel the energy flow as chills. So I knew that there was some shift of the energy in my body. So it wasn't a placebo effect. So it yes, it is quick, it is effective, and and the the sense of peace, of internal peace, juxtaposed to that high level of anxiety that, that I felt just a few minutes earlier was just amazing. <laughs> yeah,
1: the EFT works really fast. And again, it's working on the energy level. We're not trying to fix anything or change anything on the physical level. We're not trying to change our reality because our reality is what it is. Our experiences are what they are. But the way we think and, and and the way we approach them are can just make all the difference. So we have stuff to deal with in our lives. We have challenges in our lives. But the frame through which we see them is, is really powerful. I I had so many examples of people who have had various life circumstances to deal with. Like one young veteran I worked with, he was um, serving in Iraq, and he was there in 2004 during this huge battle called the Battle of Fallujah. And he was working as a medic, uh, dealing with wounded people, and had to deal with a lot of of dead people as well, dead bodies. And um, one day... He had was given this assignment. He had to clean the uniform of a friend of his who had been killed in combat, and he they they were cleaning the the uniform up to send it back to the the man's parents back in the u s with all his personal effects and the the uniform smelled so bad that this young medic was having to like do some cleaning, then run outside hyperventilate to get some fresh air, then run back into the hut to do some more cleaning. Just because, you know, I was sitting in the hot sun for a a few days. I was, it smelled awful. And so he was nauseated even years later when he was sharing the story with me a few years years later. And he, it was the worst moment of his life. Cleaning the uniform of his friend and the smell of the uniform was the, 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 he described it as the worst day of his life. So he tapped with him, same experience as he went down to a zero, And then I ran into him at another event a few months later, and we tested again on that scale from zero to 10. So he was a 10 out of 10 to start with, a zero out of 10 to end with. And when I talked to him again a few months later, he was still at a zero, and he said, I'm so glad I was the one who was picked to clean the uniform, because I could do it with devotion and then get that uniform back to his his parents in the US and it was an act of love so here his whole story has changed same event same terrible tragedy and yet it's ter- it's, it's 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 changed from the worst day of my life into an act of love so it didn't change anything about his material reality but it completely one hundred eighty degrees reversed his perception of the event, and many people call that a cognitive shift. So you will see your life circumstances very, very differently once you've applied tapping to them.
0: Absolutely. So this, in in fact, leads to my next question: Does EFT healing affect your mind, body, emotions, or even your spiritual dimensions?
1: Those are labels of convenience, like mind and body, where does one end and the other begin? Emotions of the body. Emotions are just labels we give to physical feelings in our bodies. And then we are beings of infinite spirit. de Chardin said in the 1950s that we are spiritual beings on a human journey. And so we are that, and we can know ourselves as that, and we can live as, as that. So we, we, we label these things to study them or to work on them but uh, we're unitary beings, and all of our um, all of our parts are being affected when when we heal. So EAP is working on energy flows, and that definitely reduces stress in the body. Uh, so here I am tapping on acupuncture points, shifting. This is my small intestine over here. This is my bladder meridian, gallbladder, stomach meridian, and so on. So we we know what these energy flows are, and we can describe them in those terms. But I did a series of studies starting in 2010 on cortisol. And what we found is that cortisol, your main stress hormone, drops dramatically when you tap. We did a triple-blind triple blind randomized controlled trial with three groups, a therapy group, an EFT group, and a rest group who got one hour of either resting in the clinic, regular psychotherapy, or EFT. And anxiety and depression, now again, these are mental conditions, emotional conditions. Anxiety and depression dropped more than twice as much in the EFT group as the other two groups. Cortisol dropped significantly more in the EFT group. So the emotions to do with anxiety and depression went down. We regulated energy using the meridians and then this molecule, this objective marker, biomarker of cortisol plunged when people did eft were that interwoven as as beings body mind heart spirit
0: Mm, beautiful now It is well known in the energy healing circles and in spiritual teachings that quite often we can have a trapped emotions or trapped energy that is not ours. So we get it from someone else, someone else's energy. For example, we could say go out to the shopping center and then we come back home and we feel either depression or anxiety or some other negative emotion and we can't put a finger on it. Well, why do I feel this way? I have no reason to feel this way. So, we, so in other words, we pick up other people's emotional clouds, I call them, or emotional energy. So is it possible to remove this type of negative emotion that is somewhere trapped in the body.
1: Yeah, and there's a very uh, interesting field of science which studies a phenomenon called emotional contagion. And chapter two of my book, Mind to Matter, I talk about this and they use contagion because they, they study it like they study the spread of a virus or a bacterium. infectious agent. They study emotions and emotions are infectious. And you walk around smiling, other people will start to smile. They'll affect people around them. And suddenly the whole community starts smiling or you walk around and you're mean and nasty and resentful and you look like uh, a thundercloud and suddenly everyone around you is, is, is affected by it as well. So there are these negative energies that I can feel sometimes when I go into uh, like a a big store and a, that I there are all these energies in there. In fact, for many many years I couldn't easily go into them at all because of the energy chaos in those environments. And we can easily pick it up, especially if we're sensitive. We can we can pick up those energies. They can you know c- attach to us. So you definitely want to practice energy hygiene. I do, the, do that preemptively. So I'm going to a big box store. I'm going to Home Depot or Costco or Walmart or someplace like that. I'll do some energy exercises to shield myself before I go in. If I don't do that. I will stand there in the middle of the store where everyone can see me and I will do my energy exercises whether they whether they think I'm crazy or not. So no one seems to mind or notice, but I'll do some tapping to release and I'll do some other energy work to release right there in the aisle of Costco. If I forgot. to <laughs> <laughs> Before I went in, so yeah, it's important if you, especially if you're mm. energy sensitive. There's a book called EFT for the Highly Sensitive Temperament, a wonderful mm. book which which showed me how to do this. I read the book years ago and um, practiced those techniques. So yeah, you can use it preemptively. release those energies otherwise you know you're going to have stuff stick to you from people around you from from members of your family especially i mean you probably have some members of your family who are great to be with and some of the really toxic (laughs) and so you go to a family gathering and there's that toxic person sitting there and then they're talking to you and you feel the energy and you're, you're part of a family energy system, and so it can easily stick to you, and then it can just make you feel low. So you have to develop resilience. And in Chapter 7 of my book, Bliss Brain, it's all about the resilient brain, about how people can develop resilience, not as a as a state. So a state of resilience is wonderful. I'm in a resilient state. I feel resilient today, but develop a resilient trait where you have wired your brain so strongly For that, that you are now a resilient person. And then, you know, good things happen, bad things happen, but you have that basic resilience. And then in in chapter one of my book, The Sprain, I describe what happened to my wife and I a few years back when we were trapped in a wildfire. And uh it was just a shattering experience because we, she shook me awake at twelve forty-five a.m. I looked at the alarm clock next to me and said twelve forty-five a.m. I looked out the window, walked outside the house, and there was this wildfire yeah. sweeping toward our house in Northern California. And I just yelled at her, "We're getting out of here!" We ran through the house, we grabbed the car keys and our phones ran to the car in this just blizzard of of embers um, and bits of of fire just swirling all around us and it was like it was like hell you know just yeah. white and orange and red glare mm. we just jumped in the car we drove at high speed as fast as we could and we I mean the, the trees were bursting into flames above our heads as we drove out of our our, our property and so we definitely had then As we lost our home, we lost our business, we lost every single thing we possessed except for that car and those phones. And it was a shattering event. I also lost my health the following year. We lost all our retirement savings in the business disaster that followed. And so, you know, no money, uh, no house, no business, no office. And so I I did, of course, what everyone would do in in the next year the year after that happened. I, I was meditating. I was meditating every single day. And it was powerful because that's the year I wrote the book Bliss Brain because I was hitting these elevated states of consciousness. I was just in in bliss, even though around me it looked like everything in my life had turned to to, to, sit, to ashes. Um, I still was able to, to be in those, those spaces, not dissociating, not denying the reality I was living in, But moving into that non local mind and then recreating a wonderful non local reality around me over the next while. So, when I say resilience, I'm not talking theoretically here. (laughs) <laughs> I talked about something I've lived through some really difficult times in my life. And again, you you send those signals through those neural bundles, and then you turn a state of resilience into a trait of resilience. So when the recession hits, or when you lose your job, or yeah. when you have a financial disaster, or you have a marital breakup, or your 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 children are struggling, you are a resilient human being. And it's powerful to have that gift of resilience. It's wired in your brain. And no fire, no job disaster, no economic collapse, no political calamity, no natural disaster can take it away from you.
0: So important. So do we need to believe in energy healing? In other words, (laughs) do we need to change our mind about condition for energy healing to work? Or will it happen regardless? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I'd love to do a study of people who don't believe energy healing will work and teach it to them and then have them work on people, clients who also don't believe energy healing will work and see what happens. But um, these are just energy flows in the body. Like You don't have to believe in electricity to turn on the light in your house Mm -hmm. and have have the light bulb go, go on. And I can measure these flows in the brain. I can Hook you up to an EEG, and I can show you it's there. Now you don't have to have to believe in it or not, but I can assure you that that is ob- objective science. To do that, mm-hmm. I can hook you up to an MRI, and hook you up to a heart rate variability monitor. There are all kinds of instruments we can we can we can hook you up to. And when I tap, your brain waves will change, whether you believe it or not. So these are independent, objective biological measures. The subjective ones are interesting but the object of biological ones show that these changes are happening in the brain and the body, whether you believe them or not.
0: Thank you. This is so important for people to hear. Now, I'd like to ask you a hairy question. (laughs) (laughs) I like asking hairy questions. If we accept that most, if not all, health issues are caused directly or indirectly by stress, So directly via stress hormones and indirectly, perhaps via gene expression. And we have a healing modality such as EFT that is proven to remove stress and anxiety from our system. Can we then say that this is a panacea, a prevention and cure for all illness and disease, or at least has a potential to be? (laughs)
1: <laughs> that a, is a great question. And there is actually a good answer to that. And no healing is a panacea, no treatment is a panacea. Like, for example, in our veteran studies, 90% of veterans recover from PTSD, 10% do not. In pain studies, pain goes down by about 65%. That means 35% of the pain is still there. Why is that? Why, if tapping can take away 65% of pain, on average, can it not take away 100% of pain? Why doesn't it work for every veteran? Why isn't it 10 out of 10 veterans rather than 9 out of 10 veterans? So um, the answer is that different diseases and different conditions are vary in the degree to which they're triggered by stress. So for example, something like PTSD is highly triggered by memory, and the stress and the biochemical reactions like cortisol and adrenaline that accompany that. So EFT works brilliantly on those kinds of highly stressed based conditions like PTSD. Um, How well does it work, for example, on on pain? Again, pain, it works about 65%, but it doesn't work on that last 35%. Why not? Probably because that's actual physical pain. 65% is stress about the pain, 35% Thirty-five percent is actual physical pain, and you definitely want to tap on the stress about the pain and bring that down to a zero. And then go to your doctor, and I mean, maybe you need a medication, maybe you need an operation. So the remaining thirty percent, five percent, is that object of physical problem. Genetically, you you're wired to be a, be a certain way. Like aging, we all age. Aging is inevitable. We're all going to age. It's not like someone is going to not age if they tap but they'll age a lot more slowly if they're not stressed. The difference in longitudinal, long-term studies between stressed people and unstressed people shows that the lifespan difference is at least 10 years and probably longer. So the difference between you living a stressed life and you uh, having negative thoughts in your, your, your mind on a regular basis, and you having an unstressed life, tapping, meditating is dramatic over time. So these long-term studies show that stressed people are going to age much quicker. On average, they're gonna die 10 years sooner. And the the granddaddy of all these studies is the Adverse Childhood Experiences study, ACE study, showing that people who had high degrees of emotional trauma as children, by the time they're 50 and 60 years old, have more cancer, more heart disease, more hepatitis, more suicide attempts, more diabetes, more obesity. The list just goes on and on of all these things you don't want to have. And people who have childhood trauma and don't heal it, then have a lot more of these things from 50 onward. So um, you really want to work on this. It's not like you can live forever if you tap, but you will definitely have a, a longer health span and in all likelihood, a longer lifespan than somebody who doesn't address their stress. And again, those are just genetic things you can't change very much. And you can change them quite a lot with tapping, meditation, and other stress reduction techniques.
0: Mm, yes. Now, speaking of pain, in my understanding, pain as such is not an illness or disease or a health issue in itself, but it is a symptom of something. Whether it is psychosomatic, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, it is a symptom. So I agree that there would be a a different level or a variation in the effectiveness of tapping on pain. But when we talk about things such as stomach ulcers or liver problems or allergies, even cancers, from the perspective of gene expression or certain genes activation, I would like to make a link here between genetic predisposition for certain illnesses and diseases and the effect of tapping and other stress reduction methods on keeping those undesirable genes under control, hence, as you just said, extending our lifespan and uh, and keeping us healthier than we would be otherwise. Could you talk to this, please?
1: Yeah, and the really... Good evidence for this comes from twin studies. So in twin studies, researchers look for identical twins. They're born with exactly the same genome. So look at the identical twins. They have, they look they they, they look, look so much alike, often even their parents can't tell them apart for the first few years. Um so initially these kids have the same they look the same, they have the same abilities, and then you would think that they would have the same lifespans, the same health spans. If they're going to get cancer, they'll both get cancer because they both have this that that gene. And it turns out that that's not true. So in my book, The Genie in Your Genes, I have a case study from two twins called Isabella and Olivia. And they, by the age of five, they look very different because Isabella got a childhood cancer when she was two. And again, they're they're, they're identical genes being raised in the same household, the same environment, exactly the same nature, exactly the same nurture. Why does one identical twin get cancer and the other didn't? I mean, this was a big puzzle to the the researchers who were studying them. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that she had had Isabella had a tonsillectomy at the age of about six months, and it was really stressful for her. And they think that that stress actually triggered her cancer. So. That's just where this comes in. Uh, some of these diseases are highly genetic, but even like Alzheimer's is highly genetic. If you have an it's called an apogene, if you have an apogene four from your father and an apogene four from your mother, then you're an apogene 4-4. And those people have over 90% likelihood of getting. Alzheimer's disease. If you have an apogene 4-4, if you have an apogene 3-4, it's over 70%. If you have an apogene 1-2 or 2-2, it's, it's not very high at all. So uh, again, a strongly genetic disease. But a study in 2020 of Alzheimer's patients found that there was one thing far more important than genetics in the development of Alzheimer's disease, and that was consciousness. They found that people who were negative thinkers, who did what they call RNT, repetitive negative thinking, they were ruminating about the bad stuff. Again, the default mode network, the the tiger that almost ate me yesterday, the tiger that might eat me tomorrow. And because there are no tigers in the real world, they're worrying about paper tigers in their mind, imaginary ones in the future, imaginary ones in the past. And they're obsessing like this, They're they're negative thinkers they were literally having greater deposits of Alzheimer's plaques, beta amyloid plaques in their brains than people who were positive thinkers. And the effects scaled. The more negative thinking they did, the more they developed these Alzheimer's plaques. And it was regardless of whether they were in Apogene 3-4, Apogene 4-4, the genes were there. But it was the negative thinking, it was consciousness, emotion, literally triggering gene expression. So you have the genes, but it's not whether you have them or not, it's whether they're expressed or not that counts.
0: Thank you. Thank you. This is really so important. So we do create our physical reality, including our physical and mental conditions with thought, emotions, and intentions, including changing our environment so as someone once said everything is in your mind (laughs) literally (laughs) that's where everything begins and ends yes
1: it's amazing that you can turn on genes with your mind alone like you know just just think a stressful thought and then the gene that codes for cortisol just gets turned on think a positive thought and the gene that codes for Beneficial cell repair hormones like DHEA gets turned on. In eco-meditation, in, in, in certain forms of deep meditation, for example, people have a 65% rise in dopamine, the motivation molecule. They have a big rise in oxytocin, a big rise in serotonin. All these pleasure molecules are there in their brains purely by the action of consciousness alone. So our consciousness really is creating a huge amount of what we think of as both our internal biological reality and our external material reality.
0: Yes, and this is no longer a mambo-jumbo or a woo-woo, as some people might call it, but it's, it's based in science. We now have scientific evidence with our physiology, with our biology, genetics, that this is actually... Happening. Wow. Beautiful. What are you most passionate about in the work you do? <laughs> I
1: am really focused, Anna, on what I can do personally to alleviate suffering. And so I do research. I've been involved in over a hundred studies, and there are now over a hundred clinical trials of EFT. Uh so I approach it from the standpoint of science. I do a lot of promotion. I'm on a lot of podcasts. I'm on a lot of summits. I really try and get out there and share with people that this is possible, because you watch people sometimes living in a tiny little fraction of their potential, and they have all these stories about, oh, I can't do this because I'm a man, or I'm a woman, or I'm not from the U.S., or I'm too fat, or too thin, or too short, or too tall, or I don't have the money, I don't have the time, blah, blah, blah. These always boring stories about how how limited we are, and we are glorious beings. We are beings that can sit there in meditation, close our eyes, leave local reality, ascend in consciousness to non-local reality, live there, love there. We have this huge surge of oxytocin in our brains. The default mode network shuts down. The enlightenment network fires up. We're in heaven. We're in bliss. And then you do that often often enough in meditation, and now your brain starts to change. So that randomized controlled trial I did showed that people's brains literally in 30 days were changing. Another study found that if you are doing mindfulness in in two months, the part of your brain that regulates all the negative emotions anger, frustration, blame, guilt, that part of the brain can grow by 20% in just a couple of months. So now you're regulating the negative emotion and then you're able to move into the state of consciousness. And most people have all these stories, all these excuses, live these small, limited lives and It's just a a weight of personal history that cuts us off from our full potential. And so what I'm passionate about is telling people, hey, wake up, live your potential. I I have a lot of grandkids and, you know, I hold some of them when they're babies and I look at these grandchildren, I think they have unlimited potential and then you can watch them as they grow sometimes, gradually dialing it down. And now, fortunately, much less than in previous generations, but, um, We are beings of unlimited potential. We can have those experiences, what the Sufis call the glimpse of heaven. And we can move into those glimpses like the one you had when you found yourself in theta and your arms and legs were drifting. We can go there and spend a lot of our time there. And in that MRI study of mine, we put people in the MRI after a month, and now they were not meditating, and their brains were in much higher states of consciousness, much more compassion and a dial-down default mode network. You don't meditate to get good at meditation. You meditate to get good at everything else you do in your life, to have more love and compassion and wisdom in your outer life. Meditation is a means to an end. So um, what I'm passionate about is convincing people, hey, just do that 15, 20, 30 minutes in the morning. You will have a dramatically better life after a few weeks of doing that. And then all of the limitations you have in your consciousness about, I can't do this. I'm too limited in this way. Tap those away. Don't believe those stories go out and have and live a glorious life. So in my books and in my research, I'm really making that argument as eloquently as I know how, as forcefully as I know how, because it just bugs me to see people live in a tiny subset of who they can be when really we're we're born here, we came in here as babies to live these lives of connection with each other, with the universe, with nature, and with pleasure. And that really is what we came here to do and be and any excuse we have any way of making ourselves less than that is a waste of our potential and you don't want to be that person who at 90 or 95 years old maybe 75 years old is in the hospice holding the hand of the nurse saying i wish i'd learned to play the saxophone i wish i'd traveled to istanbul i wish i'd i wish i'd spent more time with my grand grandparents what they do not say is they do not say gee, I wish i had answered every last email that wound up on my inbox. I wish I'd spent more time on social media. I wish I'd spent more time uh-huh. reading bad news, and getting worried about it. They don't care about that. They care about the love. We come in in love. We exit in lo- this life in love. The, the challenge is to let go of the obstacles that prevent us from experiencing the fullness of that love every moment of every day. And that's what I'm passionate about.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. So if... I could distill this message, I would say to all the negative people out there, start thinking more positively, be more positive and you'll be much healthier. And instead of saying, I can't, focus on, I can, and meditate. Does it capture more or less the essence of this conversation?
1: Yeah, tap away your excuses. Meditate, love yourself, and uh, just abandon yourself to the joy that you deserve.
0: Yes. And that we all deserve it. I think this is also an important part because so many people just don't believe that they deserve.
1: Now, Annie, you and I can tell them you deserve it. Now
0: you know. (laughs) (laughs) and I told you. (laughs) Yes. So to all our listeners out there, now you know. You deserve it. Dr. Church has told you, you deserve it. So. <laughs> so you absolutely can do it. Okay, Dawson, now could you tell us a bit more about your work, your beautiful website, EFT Universe, your courses and other offerings? And I will I will include all those links in the show notes. And also, I believe that uh, there is a, a special bonus, a gift that, that people can download free of chat? So could you talk to how people can access your work and and connect with you?
1: Yeah, there's several ways to do that. And one is to download the free EFT mini manual at tappinggift.com. So if you do one thing, go to tappinggift.com, download the free mini manual, try it yourself. You'll also get a special meditation there that we've shown in a clinical trial, raises your immunity you become your immune system dials up when you do that. So that's at tappinggift.com. And also make sure you download one of my apps. I have an app called Stress Solution and you can just go to the app store and download that. That allows you to do live one-on-one sessions on demand with an EFP practitioner. So these are highly trained people that trained to work with, with all kinds of conditions from weight loss to relationships, to money, to traumatic stress. And using the Stress Solution app, you can just go in there and do a session with those those practitioners one-on-one. Your first session is free on the Stress Solution app. So that's the second thing to do. A third thing is take a class. We have virtual classes. We have in-person classes. I teach at places like Omega and 1440 Multiversity. So we can take a a, a live class in person or the same live class virtually. But we have one four-day class that really trains you in, in EFT. So take a class, work with a practitioner. And then we have a bunch of online courses. We have a wonderful relationship one, which trains you in relationship skills. We have a weight loss one. And our weight loss, we, we've done clinical trials of our weight loss program. And in those clinical trials, they show that people lose weight during the six, six weeks of the program. But in the year after they finish the program, they lose an average of two pounds a month so they keep on losing weight for the year after they end the program And there's a whole bunch of evidence showing that people keep on losing weight after an EFT weight loss program. So all of that's available on EFT Universe. You get there through tappinggift.com. You'll be on EFT Universe. Browse it. There are thousands of pages there, Lots of tons of free resources there for you. And these are all ways of bringing EFT into your life. So um, do EFT, do meditation. There's a lot of yummy stuff out there. (laughs) And it'll show you how to release those limitations and have the life that Again, Anna and I have now told you, you deserve. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Dawson, for this wonderful conversation. And it is absolutely invaluable and, and beautiful.
1: Yeah, what perceptive questions, Anna. You're a really uh, thoughtful and detailed person. I just appreciate you sharing that in this form of your audience. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Is there anything that you would like to add to leave our audience with? Just
1: your good life, your love, your connection with the universe is as simple as just tuning into your breath. So every day, just breathe, know that there is non-local mind available to you as a place to go to. And in the middle of local reality, which can be so absorbing, just know that there is that infinite universe, non-local universe of love, of compassion, of joy, and joy out there for you. And just in the next breath, that will take you there. So it's not hard to get there. And you want to spend as much of your life there as you possibly can.
0: (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you so much. I much appreciate. Yes, we are now showing the heart, which people can't see, but I can. And I reciprocate. Thank you so, so very much and all the best on your journey
1: you too, every blessing, bye
0: thank you that's all for today folks I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you really loved it please post a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to encourage others to listen to it for the show notes and other podcast info please go to my website at quantumliving.com.au forward slash podcast And if you'd like to dive deeper into quantum living and explore how you could work with me, please contact me and I'd be delighted to help and support you on your quantum journey. I am your host, Anna Anderson. I look forward to connecting with you in the next episode of Quantum Living. Until then, keep your vibrations high and be well.